0: I think the Web3 model, the beauty of it is that once you decided to go on that Web3 model, essentially you've taken a pre-commitment that's going to go with the company forever. Or if it's not a company, whatever it is, but it's going to go with that venture forever, right? Because if you've created something that is hard-coded into the, into the protocol, the fact that tomorrow the board will say, but we want a hire rake, that doesn't work like this because you already now have governance and you have power to the demand and power to the supply. And maybe you could change the rake, because let's say that you just can't maintain the service with too low a rake, just as an example. But then that would need to be the vote of demand, supply and creators, and not just the decision of the creators.
1: This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Boundless Conversations podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. These conversations help us make sense of what's coming next with platform business models, the dynamics of marketplaces, business ecosystems, and much more. Join me, my regular co-host Sina Heikila, and other guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world.
2: Hello and welcome back to the Bounderless Conversation podcast, episode 20. Today we have a very special guest, Gigi Levy-Weiss, who is a founding partner at NFX. And he also heads up uh, NFX Israel, where he's widely known as one of the most prolific investors in the region. And Gigi is also himself an entrepreneur and has uh, founded several startups, including, for example, Playtica Beachbum, acquired by Voodoo, Inception VR and Ridge. And he was also the CEO of 888 Holdings, one of the world's leading online gaming companies, and the division president of Amdocs, a leading billing and CRM provider. And interesting to note as well is as, um, as a pilot of the Israeli Air Force, Gigi really learned the value of always striving for excellence at all times, which is very clear from when you hear him speak about different topics and building learning organizations and working in teams, essentially also topics that we really go into in in this episode when he talks about his perspective as an investor and uh, observing, let's say, the field of marketplaces, platforms and ecosystem.
1: Yeah, great podcast, great conversation, very short, uh, shorter than the average ones that maybe we have because uh, Gigi, as many of our guests, have a terrific agenda. But in a few minutes, uh, we managed to talk about, I, I think, a uh, couple of very important points, especially when we spoke about uh, his vast experience in, in gaming and uh, uh, we uh, described how gaming companies are often pioneering in terms of uh, um, both uh, uh, engagement for the player and what we can learn from that, uh, and this very much resonates with Boundless' idea of a learning engine that is very central to platforms, and also uh, when it's, we spoke about uh, being data-driven. So these are two very interesting points we raised, the first question, and then when we jumped into talking about Web3, uh, Gigi didn't, uh, of course, lack depth and the uh, capability to bring up a few very important points. And and so, really, I was really impressed with a, with a contributor to this podcast uh, as much as I, I did with Gigi's uh, capability to roam uh, very wide uh, uh, into the scope of, uh, of uh, platforms and ecosystems and innovation in general. So... Really, you should enjoy this, this podcast. And, uh, um, you know, without further ado, just give it a listen. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Boundless Conversations podcast. Today, with me, we have my usual co host, Stina Heikila. Hello, everybody. And uh, another very special guest, uh, Gigi Levi Weiss. Hi, Simone. Hi, Stina. Thanks so much for your time. We are really, really appreciate We know you're super busy and you're making space for, for the conversation with our listeners, which, by the way, are very much looking forward to learn from you. So I don't think Gigi needs much presentations as part of the NFX VC and also multiple times entrepreneur and has been a voice that marketplace and platform e entrepreneurs have been following thanks to your writings, your several podcasts you've been on. So today we our major aim is to add some more meat let's say something new you know helping you to share some from your experience to our listeners. So basically we can probably start from a quick initial question that I want to ask you to to address. You have this long experience in gaming and uh, both as an entrepreneur as an investor and games have been countless times somehow pioneering new interaction models and uh, innovations that have then later on been adopted uh, through other experiences and services. So maybe one initial question is, what can we learn from the gaming industry? that can be applied broadly, more broadly, and especially, I would say, in the context of platforms, ecosystems, and marketplaces, that seems to be your bread and butter these days. So I'm thinking about patterns, primitives, mental models, key elements that uh, you believe are going to be exported and more generalized, let's say, coming from the world of gaming into more generally the digital service industries.
0: Yeah, thanks, Simon. I think it's a great question. At the end of the day, you know, we invest in many things, and everything from you know B two B SaaS uh, and B two B marketplaces all the way to consumer products and games. And the question always comes up: Is games a separate thing, or is it just part of the same continuum? And what we like telling people is that games is actually not just part of the same continuum, but actually it's a lot more than that. Games is maybe the most extreme and pure form of internet businesses and I'll explain in a second why that's the case. Being that that's the case by the way many times we would have a CEO where we feel the you know the company's not moving fast enough or not iterative enough or not data driven enough and we can take such a CEO and send them to a day or two in a games company and they come back with you know where their minds open to how things could be run which is very different than the way they run their businesses so 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 let's dive into the specifics. I think that at the end of the day what many people don't understand about games is that games are a product, right? It's, it's not just entertainment, it's really a product. And this product is aimed like many other products to generate customer acquisition and then customer retention and engagement and monetization. But the difference between games and other products is that the quantity of data and the quantity of interactions we have in every game are ridiculously higher than in any other type of product so if we take for example an e-commerce page then i come to an e-commerce store and i look at a bunch of products let's say that i'm that i have my time and i i look at 10 products okay and that takes me like 20 minutes and i click on a bunch of things and i look at similar products and altogether maybe there's at the end of it 50 to 100 data points about what I've done, what products I looked at, what similar product did I look at, where did I browse from, what time of day it is, how long did I stay on every product. At the equivalent session of a games company, it is very likely that there's more than 10x data points on the same session length. Not to mention, of course, that I'm very likely to come to that e-commerce page maybe once a week, maybe once a month, but definitely not five, six times a day While for the game that I like, I'm coming back five, six, 10, maybe 12 times a day. And so not only do we have more data per session, but we also have a lot more sessions per day and a lot more sessions per week or active days per week. The outcome of it is that all the principles that everybody's preaching on internet businesses, which is that every decision and every product decision and every iteration needs to be based on data, that is actually amplified dramatically when it comes to games because we have so much more data. Because we have so many more things that we know about the customer at that point, about the playing style, about the, what, what the player does when they lose, what the player does when they what, what does the player do when they win? What happens when they're out of coins? What happens when they just won something? And all this data eventually dictates our analysis of the behavior of the player, which then dictates a bunch of things. It dictates the way we interact with the customer. Like what do we tell the customer at any point? It impacts the way we monetize the customer. When do we offer the customer to buy something? What do we offer them to buy? How do we respond to what's happening in the game? And it very much impacts the way we retain the customer. Oh, my God, the customer just lost their army. What's going to happen now? Do we need to now give them a small army to start with because they just lost the army in the battle and maybe they're going to churn? Or or can we just continue and wait and see what's going to happen? And so... The outcome of all these data and the fact that there's all these sessions and all these decision points means that game companies today are by far the best users of customer data of all types of companies. They're generally the most iterative, meaning that they do more and more and more iterations on every feature that they put out or every change they make. They're the best in personalization. Because two players can behave very differently to the same thing, which may not be exactly the case 100% in e-commerce, but it's very much the case. And you know, we have companies like Optimove that will take your customers and splice, slice and dice it to you know, thousands of micro segments and offer each micro segment different offers at every point of the game. And, so, and at the end of the day, game companies, because of that, are faster. And so when I think about what other industries can learn from game companies, it is mostly how to be more data-driven more iterative, more responsive to the player behavior, and think more about personalization and micro-segmentation than any other companies out there. And this is what I think non-game companies can learn from game companies today.
1: That's great, especially I think when you refer to the care that most of gaming companies put into ensuring the uh, player engagement, right? You spoke about onboarding sometimes, and there is also this attention towards the flow. So Basically, giving the player uh, challenges that are according uh, and in line to his uh, or her state of uh, capability and play. So, I think uh, these are things that are really, really resonating as well with how we look into platforms, right? As a way for an ecosystem, as a way to. Uh, get people to increase their capability, their contribution, their possibilities, their potential, looking into new options that arrive. So looking into these systems as uh, learning systems and evolutionary systems. And I think games are really pioneering also also that part. So thank you very much for, for, for this initial reflection, I think.
0: Uh, I'll say one more thing. I think that you've mentioned something that I really like, which is the concept that we have called the learning organization, which is basically the fact that we think that nobody knows everything and every organization, as it evolves and as it gets more customer data, it needs to learn a new thing and it needs to evolve. Not just evolve the product, but evolve the way it works, evolve the way it retains, evolve the way it monetizes. And when I think about good games companies, it's a, it's a nice way of thinking about it. They're probably the most learning organizations out there, meaning that these are the organizations that don't take anything for granted. And as things evolve, and as they put out new features or new content or new live ops or or something new it basically adds to the learning of the organization so that the organization gets better all the time. And in a game company that will not be like that, will not be a learning organization, even if they stumble initially across something really, really good and the initial numbers are great, they're just not going to be able to continue optimizing it and continue improving it. And so the concept of learning, the concept of improving, and the concept of doing both of these based off data, this is the essence of any game company today. And this is what makes game companies such great organizations to learn from also for other areas of tech.
1: Right. I, I mean, especially as they learn from the users, right? Which is another specifically important trait of platforms. So that having all these data points, as Simon Wardley once said, that they have this capability to essentially use platform ecosystems as a future sensing engine. So essentially games are very good also at capturing new behaviors from customers, from adopters and players and giving the, the numbers and game players are also notoriously good at hacking the products so so that they it fits better with their uh, expectations and so that's a f- probably another thing that we may bring up that, People running marketplaces, running platforms should be really attentive at how users hack their products uh, and capturing all these data points to, to introduce new behaviors, new possibilities. So I think that's another very important thing, learning from, from your ecosystem. So maybe we can jump into another kind of horizontal topic that is uh, floating you know, the discussion around marketplaces and platforms. Besides this horizontality of gaming Pattern, so we can talk about uh, how much Web3 and these new innovations in the blockchain-related space and tokenization, tokenomics... Are bringing to the space of marketplaces. I was reading yesterday, a few days ago, actually, an essay from uh, Fabrice Grinda, which is another very well-known investor, in, and he was talking about uh, this transition from uh, crypto, you know, basically marketplaces that essentially maybe just uh, use crypto from from a perspective of utilizing, you know, you know, for example, adopting it uh, as a as a go-to-market strategy into what he calls. Uh, Crypto-enabled marketplaces, so marketplaces that are essentially very entrenched with the new enablers and new ideas that that Web three brings about. So. You know, Web3 has a particular capabilities to and potential to basically help us to develop new new primitives in marketplaces, to drive adoption, to create much more um, you know democratic spaces. And somehow it's essentially very, very strongly transforming the very idea of marketplaces. We had, for example, on this podcast a couple of times people from Brain Trust, which seems to be the kind of poster child of market web three marketplaces. In that case, for example, we just see the marketplace using utility tokens and playing with governance. In other cases, we are seeing marketplaces and platforms even going deeper, you know, for example, having a fully blockchain on-chain based transaction engine. So the question would be maybe more specifically, your your venture fund is very focused on network effects, is very focused on Web3, and these two things seem to be sometimes at odds. So. We are seeing Web3 also as a, as a way to disrupt the traditional way that uh, we, I would say, control value in marketplaces. And so as an investor, when you approach the context of Web3, how you are approaching this? I'm, both, I'm interested in both, let's say, maybe first, uh, the potential you see in how Web3 can transform the marketplace industry. And on a second point, maybe we can double click on when you invest into Web3 uh, players, how do you do that? Do you invest in the product? Do you invest in the protocol? How do you look into returning your investment, for example, when you invest in utility tokens and things like that? So maybe let's start from what do you see in terms of impacts of these Web3 technologies in the industry of marketplaces first?
0: Yeah, so uh, we can speak the entire conversation on that, of course. And But but I, I want to start by saying that not all Web3 uh, marketplace impact is is made equal. And, and I want to basically break it down into four different criteria or, or four different stages of market of Web3 Marketplace evolution and and explain how we look at it. So the first stage, which we think we're big believers on, but we think is not that big a revolution, is essentially using Web3 or cryptocurrencies for payment. And payment could be payment in and payment could be payment out. When we talk about that, then you take an existing marketplace. Let's take Fiverr, for example, and you can say, will some of Fiverr's suppliers, the supply side, the people that provide the services, prefer to get paid in crypto because they come from a country where receiving money is very difficult or because they come with a country with high inflation. So by the time they get it in the local currency, or maybe it comes from a country that doesn't allow to hold dollars. And so the answer is yes, it is very likely that some of Fiverr's suppliers will want to actually receive part of the money in Web3 in crypto. Similarly, could there be companies that would want to pay in crypto? The answer is yes, probably it's mostly going to be companies that are Web3 first, companies that are protocols or, or companies that have raised money in cryptocurrency, and they may want to buy services using crypto. We're big investors in a company called Ramp, which is a a fiat to crypto company. This is one of the things they do. There are other companies out there right now that are looking at the payout, clearly some like BitPay already doing part of it. And so this is the first layer. And this is essentially what we call a very tactical layer, because it's just like in the marketplace, you can have as a pay in and payout method, you can have credit cards, but you can also have ACH and you can also have PayPal and you can also have other wallets or other payment methods. This is a tactical thing. Why shouldn't we have Web3 there? And that's the first layer. And that we think is in motion and with time will be available in every marketplace. That's one thing. The second layer is to say, well, I'm doing payment in and out, but I'm also doing something else, which is that I'm using a token to create loyalty. My entire marketplace is still centralized. It's still working the same way. I'm still doing marketing the same way, but I'm going to use loyalty through tokens to basically give the people, generally the suppliers, and but sometimes also the demand side, to give them tokens that will eventually represent part of the turnover of the marketplace or part of the profit of the marketplace so that we create a new incentive for people to use the marketplace despite just having a great match between supply and demand. This is something that we've seen some marketplaces do. This is like what Braintrust does. And we've seen other companies going in this direction. And there are more and more companies, more and more marketplaces that are starting to think about that as a way to not replace their current marketplace, but actually enhance it by creating a mechanism that's going to create further incentive, both for demand side and supply side, to participate more in the marketplace. And that's something that is, we call it, it's the next level of the evolution. It's not necessarily a revolution. Where we start getting into the more revolutionary way, world is the third layer, which is where you take the entire marketplace stack, the tech stack, and you say, instead of me having to build a centralized tech stack, why don't I use smart contracts to actually decentralize the tech stack and not have to build it from scratch? This is almost like a, te- a tech decision rather than a business decision, and theoretically, you could take and you could take the uh, blockchain technology and build such a tech stack that will still be centralized completely in terms of a business, right? This is a technological decision. We've not yet seen a lot of people doing this, but as L1s become better and better and the tools around building applications on L1s become stronger and stronger, it is possible that the next marketplace that's going to come up is going to say, even if I'm centralized, do I want to use blockchain technology for implementing the marketplace functionality in a simple way? The fourth one, which is where we are all dreaming. And this is what I was really hoping for and haven't yet seen this work. This is where you use the blockchain technology and everything that I've said before, not just to change the tech decision, the, the tech selection, or to make something simpler or a little bit better loyalty. This is to change the entire business model of the marketplace. And when utility tokens came up initially, you know the first dream that we all had was that Instead of having, and let's take an example, instead of having Uber or Lyft, which are basically centralized marketplaces that connect supply and demand, and that basically have an incentive to take as much money from the demand side, almost to the point that they don't want to ride, and provide the drivers as little money as possible, almost to the point they don't want to drive and then take as much profit as possible to the central company that has shareholders. This is the traditional model. The web three marketplace utility model was different. It was, why don't we create an environment where basically everybody's incentivized to streamline the transactions as much as possible. The users are paying as little as possible. The, The drivers are getting as much as possible. And the people that are building it are basically enjoying the increase in the value of the token, the more people use it on the supply and demand. And that was the theory. And this theory is beautiful because that was the first theory out there for many, many years that basically created for the first time alignment between the three constituencies, the company building the technology or the DAO or whatever it is that's building the technology, the demand side and the supply side. And the theory was that when you get it right, you're basically going to take the most market share, because it's in everybody's interest that this will work. Now, this thesis is what got me, I think, excited about Web3 years ago. And this is something that, that still is you know, part of my dreams as to how Web3 is going to change the world. But the reality is that that hasn't happened yet. And the question is why. And I, I personally think that a big part of the answer lies in two things. One of them is very tactical, which is that for most of the new marketplaces or the the main marketplaces that we all use these days, by the time Web3 started creating alternatives, the network effect of the marketplaces, because they were around for a few years, were already too strong for anything to change just because there is a new token, a new direction, a new utility. That's one thing. And the second thing is that I think that many of these attempts were way, way, way too purist. And I'll explain what I mean. I think that what some of these attempts missed, if I take go back to the Uber ex- uh, example, is that the customers, they prefer, of course, for everything to be cheaper and better and more streamlined. But at the same time, they want customer service. And at the same time, they want to be able to complain about a driver. And at the same time, they want somebody to do vetting of the driver. And, and they don't want the complaint to go to an Oracle on the network and maybe get something. They want to get a refund for the travel right now if the car was horribly dirty or something. And as customers want vetting, and as customers want customer service, and as customers want to be treated well if they're big customers, and as the demand side wants to have the right training and everything, what you understand suddenly is that you need a lot of these central services that many of the attempts to create web 3 decentralized marketplace Kind of marketplaces kind of ended up not supplementing the core product with these additional services. And I think that a combination of the network effects strength of the existing services, the, the centralized services, coupled with the fact that many of the attempts were too pure, that's what got us to the point of where we are today, where we don't see any major marketplace in, every, in any field, which is predominantly a Web3 marketplace. And I personally think that in the years to come, as many of the tech challenges disappear, because the L1s are better and there's more tools around them. There's more tools to build products and apps on these L1s. And as more users are are severe when it comes to, to Web3, and as new founders in this field understand more and more that you can't be a purist, you need to make sure that there is customer service, you need to make sure that there is marketing, you need to make sure that there is a way to vet the drivers and so on. And eventually, as new technologies like embedded wallets and so on will allow you to create a Web3 marketplace service without having to send the customer to download a wallet somewhere else or send the customer to buy to buy crypto somewhere else. As these things happen, I'm still very hopeful that we will see more marketplaces emerging that are of that fourth type, which is really changing the interaction, the engagement model between supply, demand, and creator of the marketplace to a point that it's much better for everybody involved. And that's my hope, and that hasn't happened yet. But that's the big promise. The big promise is not necessarily adding another payment method or adding a loyalty token, which are great, but they're not really the core change that we were looking for in the industry.
1: I wanted to just ask you a little reflection. So you are pointing out that for the Web3 transformations to really produce the the impact that we expect, uh, there is a certain customer experience factor that uh, uh, at the moment is acting a little bit as a break. You, you spoke about the maybe too much ideological approaches to the market so far. So how much do you think that these kind of customer expectations of the existing network effects are going to slow down the adoption of Web3 technologies? Because it seems, for example, when you speak about not, using wallets to connect to some extent there is a kind of ideological perspective on the web3 space that people have to look after their own private keys right it's that's the, the change right so how do you expect that these two voices you know can really you know unlock
0: look guys at the end of the day i am I, you know I'm i'm a theoretical follower and lover but at the same time i'm also a practical product builder and at the end of the day if we want, let's just, just take a stupid example. If we want many people in Fiverr to receive part of their payments in crypto, then if we send them to start deciding which wallet they want to use and somehow connect the wallet and somehow do it versus giving them an embedded wallet inside Fiverr that, where they can take the money out, for example, but if we don't do that, then it's likely that it's going to be a smaller percentage of users that will choose it. And I think when we look at what got people into the Web3 world, a lot of the services that got people into Web3 are essentially centralized services. And why are they centralized services like centralized exchanges or, 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 or custodian wallets? Because for most people, the uncertainty of the decentralized infrastructure is too much for them to handle. And so they need a Coinbase that gives them two-factor authentication and gives them customer support. Or they need Binance that is a centralized exchange and lets them basically do whatever they want, just like it's a normal non-crypto exchange. And I think that we need to understand that if we want to disrupt the world with web three marketplaces, we will need to make these marketplaces as easy to use as web two marketplaces, at least. So that, and then if we, you know, and, and if we are going after something that already has a marketplace that's strong with strong network effects. It needs to be not the same. It needs to be 10x better because otherwise people don't switch, right? And so this is what we need. We need to make sure that the infrastructure we're building, the rails that we're building, the the tools that we're building are going to make these Web3 marketplaces as easy to use or better to use. And also, of course, with all the theoretical uh, advantages of a streamlined marketplace where everybody has the same incentives so that people will actually prefer to use the Web3 marketplace and not the Web2 version of the same marketplace. And this is where the industry failed so fast for you know, a variety of reasons. Part of it was performance of ones Part of it was you know availability of easy-to-integrate wallets. Part of it was just the kind of UX that you saw in some of these projects. You know, many of these, and part of it was the selection, the decision of the people that were building the dApps to actually not add centralized customer support or centralized marketing team or whatever, which at the end of the day is required to create a service that's going to be mass market. And so I think that the, it's not that I'm advocating for for building only central the other way around but I'm advocating that everybody that goes out to build a decentralized marketplace right now a web3 based marketplace should think about all these things and make sure that the product that they're building is as easy or easier and better to use than the web2 equivalent.
2: Thank you for those outlining those four layers that was really helpful and I got immediately curious you know when you said that your dream is in this in this fourth layer and I, I, I'm curious to know, you know, as an investor looking at this space, if you think about that having more incentives aligned between the supply demand and the creator and in to some extent, like empowering the, the producers on the marketplace, maybe to a, a larger extent, that's sort of embedded a, a bit in that vision. I'm wondering how you're thinking in terms of time. Is that a more of a long term game we are entering uh, are, are you going to expect sort of slower returns, smaller returns in, in exchange for some kind of impact? Or based on what you said now in your last comments, is it really sort of the same expectations in terms of just building basically a better product to invest in that is going to outcompete over time the other models?
0: So look, I think it's a very good question. And as a fund, we don't get the luxury of of investing in things because we want them to succeed. We need to invest in things because we think they're going to succeed, right? Because we're managing other people's money. And and so our thinking about it right now is that there are areas where we think such dApps can succeed today. And what we're looking for is for teams that in many cases came from Web2, teams that basically know how to build The web 2 version of what they're building in web 3 and what we seek from them is a very very professional approach as to what's required what's the minimal product quality or customer experience required for that to actually work and you know in in areas such as a decentralized uber which is like a very very clear simple proposition that should not be too complicated because drivers are multi-tenanting anyhow and because the product is commoditized and so why shouldn't it work you know we're pretty cautious on this because we think the network effect is very strong of the existing platform we also think that uh, getting people to switch without a very 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 clear monetary benefit immediate one is very difficult And we see that many platforms came out with better prices and didn't win market share even without Web3. And so in areas like this, we would be careful until we see something meaningful. But in other areas that are maybe less competitive, we are looking at such marketplaces all the time. I mean, we've invested, for example, in a company that we love called Radical, which is a a peer-to-peer, if you wish that's powered by a, by a protocol. And this was an area where we thought there's going to be enough people that are going to appreciate the fact that this is the way it works is not just a normal centralized marketplace that's controlled by a large company. And we are looking at it all the time. And as I said, the way we look at it is that we believe that when we will find the right founders with the right experience and the right concept that goes after a marketplace that doesn't have too strong network effects right now that are difficult to overcome, and they will come with a customer experience that is as good or better than the web two version plus all the benefit of the web three of the web three structure, which is better alignment between supply and demand, which is easier and faster payments, which is all the things that we like, then we'll be interested in investing in it, but it needs to be the right team it and they need to be as I said before, not too purist as in saying everything must be decentralized, everything there no we don't have anything centralized, we don't want any central services, we don't want anybody really. You know, we don't we don't want it to feel like a Web two product. Where what we think is that sadly we need to have it, you know, to make it feel a little bit like a Web two product because that's what the majority of people are using today.
1: I wanted to add to this quick reflection, uh, Gigi. Basically, I was reading a few days ago an essay from Nathan Schneider that is one of the most you know important voices in somehow in Web three. Is actually the editor of a book coming up with Vitalik Buderin on Proof-of-Stake. But in general, he wrote this post the last couple of weeks ago saying, basically, Web3 represents, it's the opportunity we have had all along. So when you say, for example, we can use Web3 enablers for, for more democratic marketplaces, for more marketplaces that concentrate less value into the creators and tech creators, but also distribute those value to the producers, the suppliers... I think uh, um, if we kind of, you know, profess this idea that we don't want to be ideological about Web three, but we want to just embrace. uh Somehow, the political challenges and the democracy related challenges that this kind of zeitgeist is bringing about somehow we are saying we had these opportunities already, and now Web three is kind of uh, making it hard to, I would say to avoid these conversations on how we build democratic marketplaces much more collective governed ones. What do you think?
0: There is this big debate on whether web three marketplaces can overcome the the evil nature of the you know capitalistic trying to extract as much money out of the marketplace evil in double brackets of course that that web2 sort of created and you know there's this counter argument that says well you know if if uber wanted to charge only three percent it could charge only three percent right and if uber wanted to take its profit and at the end of the year, share it between its drivers and its passengers. Uber can do that without Web3. And so in a way, you know, I think that many people that are skeptic are looking at it and saying, these are beautiful principles, but these principles require a change in human nature to be implemented. And we're not big believers in changing human nature, meaning that at the end of the day, the people that will, that will create it will want to eventually make money out of it. And the fact that... They may want to make money differently it doesn't change much the fact that we've had the opportunity to, to create it before, and we haven't we haven't created it so it 's not going to come. I think that you know the reality like everything is somewhere in the middle. I think that uh, it is true that many of the marketplace could have been more supply and, and demand friendly over the years you know rakes or you know take take percentages could have been taken down, and profits could have been shared with suppliers or or with demand and you know we we have seen Airbnb try to see whether they can compensate you know, the supply side with, with shares in the, in, the, in the listing, which I think was stopped by the SEC. And all of these things you know, have been around at some level. But the reality is that when you build something on the Web3 stack, you're basically taking this pre-commitment to do it which is probably much harder to do when you're starting on the Web2 stack. So when you're starting on the Web2 stack, let's say that you're going out and you're saying, I'm only going to take 5% rake, but then you raise money from investors and then you get a board and then this and then that. And somebody then asks, well, would the customers go away at 7%? And you have to admit that the answer is no. And then you say, well, with 7%, we can build better things. We can improve the product more. And then the question is 10%. And then the question is 12 And so the Web2 model by design I think in in the way corporate governance works will, generally speaking, lead people toward that we're taking as much as we can, be it for our pockets or be it for then investing more in building products and so on. I think the Web3 model, the beauty of it is that once you decided to go on that Web3 model, essentially you've taken a pre-commitment that's going to go with the company forever. Or if it's not a company, whatever it is, but it's going to go with that venture forever right? Because if you've created something that is hard-coded into the protocol, the fact that tomorrow the board will say, but we want a higher rake, that doesn't work like this, because you already now have governance, and you have power to the demand and power to the supply. And maybe you could change the rake, because let's say that you just can't maintain the service with too low a rake, just as an example. But then that would need to be the vote of demand, supply, and creators, and not just the decision of the creators. And so in a way, It is true that that Web3 on its own does not generate a new model maybe that will take away the desires of each one of the three sides of the marketplace, the the, the creators of the marketplace, the demand and supply, to each optimize their own position. You can't change human nature. However, once you build it on the Web3 stack, it is very possible that if you did it correctly, it limits the ability of which one of these sides to actually act in a way that's irresponsible to the others, and so this pre-commitment has in it not necessarily a new way to impact to, to impact human behavior, but a new way to create a pre-commitment that can't easily be changed later. That, does that make sense?
1: Yes, yeah, so, so some kind of commitment to build for integrating different points of view and try to build something that is attentive to everybody's perspective. So I think you 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 got this very very clearly. So thank you so much.
0: If we ask ourselves, what would happen if every price change in Uber would need to be voted by supply, demand and, and company? It is very likely that it's going to act a little bit differently than the way it is if it's only the company, right? That needs to close a better quarter or or the board is pushing to increase profits or whatever, right? It would be different. Uh, it, by the way, it may, it may even be that it's not going to be that different between supply and demand. Because supply and demand both understand the constraints. The drivers understand that the comp- that the passenger is not going to pay triple the price, and the passenger understands that if the driver is not going to get paid, then they're not going to drive. Right. So it is possible that there is even even today there's more alignment between driver and passenger than there is between everybody else in the company. And so Web three kind of solves for this, but it needs to succeed, of course.
2: Now we were talking about you know how is not necessarily whether it's web two or web three, that will change human nature, as you as you mentioned, and the sort of outcome of, of some decisions over, over other, although it, it changes the premises to make other decisions, and it's probably going to have an influence on that. But then I was thinking about other types of influences, like we're living in a sort of increasingly unstable world in many respects. So we have climate emergency, we have a lot of political turmoil, and a lot of other types of pressure that is also influencing this space. So I don't know if you have any reflections on, you know, how you see this world solving for some of those challenges. We mentioned before, you know, paying out in crypto could actually help us to get around issues of inflation locally, for instance, and and sort of increase their, their income power through that. Do you see other, other ways in which the the, these two are impacting each other. Let's let's say, like the these external pressures that we are experiencing, and the way that the industry is is evolving.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that's this a very good question, and you know, it's it's very it's sort of very philosophical and very tactical at the same time. I, I think there's a bunch of there's a few ways to look at it, or maybe three different layers to to the answer. At the beginning of everything, I think that through tech in every field, we live in a period of unparalleled abundance. In everything humans touch, you know if we look at the you know quantity of food around the world there's probably for the first time in history in the last decade there's enough food to feed the world with no problem right When we look at water, there's enough desalination and purification technology to actually provide if we want clean water to everybody that needs it in terms of education, not only are there more and more people that that can read now than in any other period of history in the world. But also through online education, we could basically teach everybody everything if we only wanted to, and so on and so on. You know, the lives, you know, life expectancy has gone up because of medical development. The ability to prevent diseases has gone up dramatically because of biological changes that that we've created. And so I, I think that we, the technology is definitely impacting the world for the better. And I have no question. Even with my concerns about where the world is heading. I think that if on every, literally in every criteria that we can look at, through technology, the world became a better place. And, and even, you know, we, we now have the horrible Russia-Ukraine war. Uh, but at the same time, I think we're at we're the period where the least people in history are impacted by armed conflicts. And so even on that side, we're not doing that badly. So, so that's one thing. And I think that technology will continue driving, you know, humankind further on everything for the better. And this is something we can't forget. And this, you know, when we talk about the impact and the importance of technology in this, we need to remember that, that this is a given and that this is an assumption that we need to continue, I think, living by because that's a critical part to the world becoming a better place. And, you know, and, and there could be hiccups and we can talk about them, but that's one thing. I think the second thing is the question of whether at the end of the day, there is a responsibility for the tech ecosystem to basically be more influential when it comes to the problems that, are, that, are, that, that needs to be addressed in the world right now. And so you know, the, the question then becomes, should founders of another game actually dedicate their time to solving global warming or to helping feeding the world or to developing better technology for curing a specific disease? And, and I think the answer is yes and no. In other words, I think that there are all the needs that humans have and entertainment at one extreme is one of them, you know, and then at the other extreme, there are the existing the existential needs. And I think technology should cater for all of them. But I do always tell people that come to me with a bunch of ideas that if you can have an idea, if you're if you're debating between two good ideas and one of them can have a better impact on the world, why don't you choose that that one? Because at the end of the day, it is it's our role as the tech ecosystem to try and do that. And and so the second thing, the third thing. Is actually an interesting one. And, you know, when you look at the history of Israeli tech, people are always asking, how come Israel, a tiny country, less than 10 million people, is one of the top, top tech hubs in the world? And, and you know, there's many answers and many potential theoretical answers, but one of them for sure is the fact that through the turmoil, conflicts, pressure, and need to solve problems in Israel, many good technologies and many good companies were created. And so when, when people ask me, if, is this a good period to invest in or a good, bad period to invest in? And I look back, I see that some of the world's best companies were actually created in the, best, in the worst times, in the worst crisis, you know, when, when there were other violent military crises or there were economical crises or there were supply chain crises or anything. And, and I think that the current environment, which is super unstable, You know, in terms of war, in terms of economy, in terms of, you know, you spoke about Israel, in terms of the political system in Israel. It's not great, but it is likely that at the end of it, it's actually going to end up creating more innovation and more solutions to problems that arise than at everything being great. I mean, if Israel became tomorrow that perfect place where everybody lives a great life and there's really no need to invent anything and there's no need to fight the status quo, then it is possible that Israel will lose its position as a main tech hub that, that created so many great companies. And and not that I welcome the political instability or the, or the current turmoil in the world, but in a way, I think we need to understand that part of that difficulty is also part of what creates innovation and part of what creates new innovative solutions. And so that has, in the big balance of things in the world, that has its role as well
2: yeah especially sort of those new really new subsystems let's say that have also grown partially in in response to sort of the in- industrial era right where things haven't been working out
0: yeah exactly
1: thank you so much we're mindful of your time so gigi that was an incredible conversation you you managed in like 45 minutes to span from gaming to political instabilities and the role of technology in changing the the world. So I'm amazed, as always, by your capability to, I would say, roam very wide in tech, uh, innovation and whatever. And I really encourage all our listeners to look into your work, whatever you publish, whatever your podcast you've been featured on. And again, thank you so much for your time. It was a great conversation.
0: Thanks very much for taking the time and for inviting me. And as always, happy to share as much as needed. Thank you, guys.
2: So thank you so much. And uh, yeah, since we were a bit in a in a hurry to close this episode, to our listeners, just please go to our website where you will find all the relevant links to find more about Gigi's work. So boundaryless.io slash resources slash podcast and you will find his episode there to get
1: you forward to the right place. Thank you so much, Stina. And to our listeners, catch up soon.
2: Okay, so that was uh, great. This is what we reached the end of our third season now with the podcast Um, we always like to remind our our guests that we started the podcast essentially one week before the pandemic and lockdowns all across Europe which kind of was the backdrop for all of season one and I think that we haven't been let's say able to relax since then Uh, there have been many unfolding events and we are currently living as well so I mean that backdrop has been I think quite present in our in all the seasons but now we have um, so we have ended season 3 and we did like a midterm check or also at the beginning of this year so now we just want to offer a little bit of a roundup for the episodes that we had in the first half of of this year Uh, before we're we're taking a short break and coming back with season 4 in a few months time from now so yeah where do you want to start Simone?
1: Well maybe we can just give a quick account of uh, where we believe the discussion over this season and the research we have been doing this year at boundaryless as uh, bringing us towards so essentially we're talking about uh, um, the, I would say that the, the major topic emerging from the conversations this year was uh, composability you know this idea that markets are evolving towards much more modularity and, and you know components being possibly being inter- interconnected between each other this is a, a I would say um a story that dates back many years in the market. So we we always speak about, uh, you know, it's a decade and more that we speak about APIs, for example. But uh, what we are, we are seeing essentially is that uh, um, the way we tend to uh, interact with technology through interfaces, for example, again, with APIs, uh, it's uh, extending a bit more. You know, we, 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 we increasingly see, for example, product led growth. So, Uh, small teams able to create uh, modular and atomic products that deliver certain capabilities and features to their users and to be very much independent in driving growth and adoption, we are seeing a lot of uh, possibility to, uh, I would say, uh, integrate these products from the customer's perspective uh, 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 with tools such as, I don't know, if this and that or, or similar uh, no-code tools that help you to integrate existing product and, you know, basically build your company just by using uh, tools that you can source on the market. And this is what we used to call, uh, uh, also in the podcast, in the conversations, today, uh, unbundling on the unbundling of the fordist bundle, essentially. And what we are seeing now with Web3 and smart contracting and protocols emerging, and this is probably still a fringe element of the market, but... Uh, is rapidly becoming commonplace and uh, uh, part of the uh, mainstream conversation. We are seeing uh, DAOs and contracts becoming uh, much more commonplace, as I said. So it's kind of a continuum between the concept of an interface and uh, the concept of a contract that is becoming much more, uh, you know, uh, usual in the business discussion. So. Essentially, what does it mean from the perspective of uh, uh, businesses and organizations? So first of all, uh, of course, uh, there is uh, um, the question of uh, becoming more strategic in investments you do and uh, uh, looking at companies uh, m- m- and organizations more in general, uh, more as venture builders or in general, more as uh, uh, builders of many pieces, then, you know, kind of focuses on only one product or experience of much more monolithic approach Uh, of course if the market goes towards modules goes towards components as a company as an organization especially the incumbent ones and in general large organizations uh, need to look into not just building products but sometimes into investing into other products or other services uh, co-owning them for example investing maybe in increasingly common uh, token-based uh, uh, governance systems. So essentially, this is something we touched upon uh, Sanjit Chudari, mostly in, lately in the podcast. Uh, again, we're looking into a transition towards uh, much more ecosystemic firms. So firms that need to be able to deal with uh, much less uh, uh, stable and enforced the product vision. So uh, they, they should be, more friendly to a context where they are much more about enabling, um, you know, the ecosystems to repackage their offerings, um, than you know just bringing their own visions and products into the market. So much more about creating components, much more about creating enabling systems and services that can be, be reconfigured on the market, both by end users but also by maybe professionals and, and other businesses. So that's one thing. And from the management and perspective and organizational layer, I think this means that companies need to uh, look into building much more optionality. So building you know many more viable paths to the market. Uh, this will make them much more anti-fragile. Um, and, uh, and to do so, uh, I think uh, uh, one strong Conviction that is coming up at least at Boundaryless that uh, um, we have to embrace uh, uh, you know market-driven organizational models. What do we mean with that? Essentially, we mean organizations that need to be uh, unbundled into teams and some, sometimes we call it teams or sometimes we call it micro-enterprises, sometimes in the DAO space, uh, someone in the DAO space is calling them pods. But in general, the idea that uh, you need to have uh, units to which you um, can, of course, delegate some functionalities in the organization uh, that most likely will have to manage their own profit and loss, their own budgets, and to which you can uh, uh, allocate money through grants sometimes, uh, you know, so that they can fulfill part of the functionalities that will keep the organization working. So that's from the management perspective.
2: Maybe also I was thinking as you were speaking, you know, about this uh, in this last episode that we, we had with Gigi talking about the, these different layers of uh, the Web3 marketplace evolution, basically. So how, how would you connect this idea that you you have increased uh, composability? And Sanjit also mentioned that this goes beyond only the software industry. Now you need to think in, of composability across all business domains, essentially, and, and start to think in that boundaryless way. And teams that also might uh, be more cooperative across to to create those different modules that can be reconfigured in different ways, uh, but also what uh, Gigi mentioned was this incentives alignment. So if you have the way where Web three would really start to change the business model or maybe the organizational model would be in the more close alignment between the supply, demand, and the creator in that space. So, so I'm I'm just thinking how how do we link that to uh, to what you just mentioned about the implications for organizational development, maybe we can touch something around that
1: well in general I think the 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 challenges at the design level you know when it comes to building products, not just uh, building the organization that builds products uh, which is what we've been talking about uh, so far is going to be even you know more uh, more challenging than just understanding how to align your supply demand um, interest with your own interest as a, as a builder as a building team it's more generally uh, you know as we move into modular products they're gonna be there's gonna be so many user related challenges in terms of user experience so for example when you build a product that uh, where you don't uh, necessarily do the whole stack so for example you don't you, you may be just doing the demand generation. Sometimes you may be, you're just providing parts of the workflow execution for demand that has been generated by someone else. Uh, in so many cases, you will have users to uh, customize their own experience uh, uh, by using just modules. Um, in many other cases, uh, you will have also to, you know as you work in Web3, for example, you will have to work with uh, Uh, shared infrastructures and and shared ontologies uh, that maybe are uh, based on protocols that you haven't been designing and you're just using as part of your strategy. So in terms of design challenges, they will abound. You know, now we are pretty much used uh, when we design services and digital services to think of, you know, I'm the owner of the experience. I can design whatever I want. I will bring it to the market and so on. Now, increasingly... You have to deal with existing choices that have been done in terms of, as I said, infrastructure, ontology, domain model, um, you know, for example, interfaces that you have with other modules for which you're using APIs or, or you're using components. So design approach needs to change. and I think that this is one of the major challenges that we can also look into next year, uh, how the practice of designing, services is changing to adapt uh, towards much more user-driven customization, towards much more component-based reorganizing instead of just designing the whole stack. And uh, the the challenges abound also from the perspective of business models, you know, and I think this is going to be another major major. Uh, issue in terms of research and design so monetizing modular products what does it mean how do you price components Um, how do you uh, deal with uh, um, the fact that uh, network effects are moving at uh, a lower layer so for example a protocol or infrastructure layer and you don't have to replicate them so for example if in the future we will see uh, things such as lens protocol or uh, something you know boson protocol uh, so protocols that are essentially uh, trying to standardize uh, either commerce or social media or in maybe in the future we'll see something around uh, you know short-term rentals and so on so how do you um, how do you deal with markets where uh, these kind of common layers are uh, aggregating network effects and then you're just in charge of designing, the way that people interact with these common layers so from a business perspective especially for us that uh, used to uh, think of uh, monetizing through data lock-ins or maybe monetizing through the vertical integration of the whole value chain this is going to become major uh, business modeling and design challenge and finally you know i think uh, we still have key open issues in this discussion um, because uh, at the same time we're looking into uh, the promises of Web3 in terms of uh, uh, bringing um, efficiencies in how we manage the markets uh, and uh, bringing less competition and more interoperability, more cooperation. At the same time, we're looking into a market that uh, is uh, uh, continuously reinventing the wheel. So I'm amazed sometimes How much uh, DAOs that profess uh, modularity, openness and integrability instead tend to reinvent uh, different protocols to do the very same thing, uh, but in a different uh, nuance. So I think uh, uh, that's another another big challenge we have for the next uh, year to explore. Um, so, for example, the question would be: How do you make uh, Web3 pro- protocols more interoperable? How do you co-invest in, in 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 strategy and in research? For example, in the preparatory moments that bring uh, a new protocol uh, into the market. So, for example, maybe couple of DAOs and existing large organizations how do they co-invest into bringing into building a shared layer for example in i don't know logistics or health care diagnostics or um, you know travel and mobility whatever no, we have been dealing with lots of customers this year that have been facing this question of uh, building uh, legitimacy in the market uh, so, how do you build a legitimacy to transform a market for the, for for good? Because this is what we need. We need to completely transform market in a way that are much less competitive, much more collaborative and efficient. But how do you build the legitimacy to to do so? How do you build uh, um, in the market the uh, infrastructure for cooperating around such a challenging uh, task and here we are seeing some interesting innovations uh, for example i'm thinking of the work that uh, prime dao uh, uh, is being is doing and we feature featured it on, on the on the blog a few times uh, in terms of uh, creating uh, ways for dao to dao collaboration and also for dao to organizing organizations uh, collaborations so there's a lot of research to do, but the question is, how do we move into this space where, as we understand that this Web3 revolution is, is, is pushing more importance into the infrastructure and, uh, and shared ontology layer, so apps are less important infrastructures are more important, shared ontologies are more important, Uh, but then how do we stop uh, reinventing the wheel all the time? We don't want to build uh, this uh, uh, complexity of stacks all the time. We just want to agree on a shared stack and then build applications on top, and this, of course, brings uh, so many challenges in terms of design, in terms of uh, approaches to market, investing, and so on
2: and i think the um, a good launchpad for that like uh, that we will link in the in the notes to this um, to this chat is the is the post uh, composability in and between organizations right so we can we can probably use that as a bit of a springboard for also launching season 4 conversations right
1: Yes, um, I'm actually writing more, and I am not sure when this episode is gonna be out, but essentially there's gonna be more content coming up uh, in the future in the future weeks on these topics because this is gonna be the topics of of the next uh, of the next year. How do we move towards uh, uh, much more integrative and cooperative markets based on modules based on shared protocols? That seems to be the direction.
2: And then I think also like what we uh, what we did a lot in this season, I think we were also talking a lot about the what. So we we had on the one hand this exploration of uh, Web three and what everything that is enables and everything that you just mentioned, and then we had a, a, a quite a few guests that were focusing on uh, building, uh, you know, building the ethics into into these kind of systems, building participation into this. We had, uh, for instance, um, John who who was talking uh, John Alexander who was talking about. Uh, you know the c- citizen economy, basically. Like, how do people get involved? And I think then uh, we have had other guests to talk about. You know how how do we address maybe externalities through more collaborative and open models? So maybe like to mention Mara and Lucia, who were talking more about sort of regenerative economies. Uh, and I think this is something that is still maybe a little bit tangent to the conversation on on Web three and and those new emerging. Technological stacks that can enable new ways of organizing, but extremely relevant. And maybe our conversation with uh, with Phoebe Tickle was also a little bit bridging those two aspects. Like, how do we create new imaginations for how to organize things that are more, let's say, embedded in landscape, that is more connected to our essential goods that we need, production, and, and new ways essentially of imagining the future that would get us out of? Uh, the current trajectories that we are on. So that marry quite well, I think, with those new potentials and technological affordances that we see emerging at the same time, right?
1: Yeah, well, I think to, to close, to conclude, there is this nice essay that came out a couple of weeks ago from Nathan Snyder that, uh, by the way, was a, a guest on our podcast as well, where he writes that Web3 uh, is the opportunity we had or we have had all along. So there is this idea that these technologies bring up new affordances to uh, rethink how we build technology and systems and businesses. But at the same time, I think if we don't frame uh, historically the moment, uh, we kind of lose, a, we're gonna lose history basically. So uh, that's where we are. I think in the in the conversations we had this, uh, this year, we touched upon the technological elements with Heaton, Sanjit, uh, Rob, uh, Solomon, with, uh, uh, I don't know, Adam from Brain Trust, for example. And, and you know, this is just to start from the conversation we had in January where we already shared some kind of uh, update for the community. But then, as as you said, many people like, uh, you know, the ones that you mentioned, but also I must add had uh, the perspective that we brought in from uh, Michael Sacasas, for example, in the question concerning how we relate with technology and automation in general, are bringing um, the question of uh, virtual ethics, the question of uh, um, you know um, confrontation with the impacts of technology, uh, very high in our in our you know in our conversations. And essentially, on one hand, we, we know that the new technologies bring in new affordances. On the other hand, we know that the questions we have to ask are not just technological. And not even po- just political, but also somehow teleological or in general, somehow ethical and, and moral. So I think uh, this is where we end the season to this year. So it's been a long wrap up, but I think this gives you a good, uh, to our listeners, give you a good, uh, will give you a good understanding of where we're going to start next year from
2: great so uh, we look forward to connecting again after a little bit of a break
1: thank you so much for uh, the time you spent with us this year and uh, catch up soon after the summer break thank you for listening to this episode of the boundless conversations podcast we truly hope you enjoyed the show if you did please share this episode on social media review our show on any major distribution platform and don't forget to subscribe for new episode releases. Stay tuned on boundaries.io for our latest news and updates. There you can also find our free design tools, opportunities to learn how to use them and connect directly with us to use our help in designing your platform strategies and organizational transformations for the age of ecosystems. We also want to thank Walter Mobiliot at Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.